Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. And when I say community, what I mean is I believe that people are basically tribal animals. We're friendly human beings. We're collaborative. We're cooperative. We like to do things together. We like to hang out together. We like to do go to baseball games. We like to create science. We like to create technology. We like to dig in the dirt from ethnobotany to archaeology to plumbing to garbage. We like doing things together. That's how we are. And we enjoy it. And it's good for us. And it's healthy for us. And there's evidence for that. But at the very same time, it's essential that we remain aware that there's a very small percentage of us that are avaricious predators. They do not believe, as we do, that we're all in this together. They believe in a top-down mentality. They don't hold to a democracy where each of us has their own vote, or a republic where each of us is never above the rule of law, and it applies to everyone. What they believe in is dictatorships. They believe in the rule of the strongman. And you see instances of this around the world. We almost had that happen here in this country in January 6th, when those folks broke into the Capitol and attempted to disrupt the transfer of power from one president to another, which we've had for over 200 years. It came very close. What that insurrection taught us is that we must be as mindful as we can be. It's part of our responsibility as citizens. Even though these are hard times, even though these are times when some people are struggling for food on the table and struggling to pay the rent, and it's not just a few people, we still must be politically aware. And I know that's asking a lot, but it's imperative because better to be struggling for food and rent in a democracy and a republic than to be struggling for food or rent in a dictatorship. Join me in staying aware and making your vote count. In the words of one of my heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I'm privileged to have with you another one of my heroes, Dr. Dennis McKenna. He's an ethnobotanist, and he's world-renowned for what he has taught us over decades about psychedelic medicines. He has recently started something called the McKenna Academy, which is dedicated to the science of ethnobotany and plant medicines and more. You want to go to the website of the McKenna Academy and get familiar with it. And today you're going to get familiar with Dr. Dennis McKenna. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Dennis. Thank you very much, Richard. It's a pleasure to be joining you today. I really appreciated your political polemic there. I think it's important to put this in front of people and, and, and motivate people to think about what's really going on. You know, as you know, our institution of democracy is threatened. I guess this is why you preface your, your podcast to remind people, but it's easy to forget. You know, people are very complacent. They get involved in their 
in their betting affairs, and they forget that, you know, we're in a collective enterprise here. You know, it's, I mean, depending on how you want to look at it, the tribe, in some larger context, it's the species. You know, we are a tribe, as I sometimes say. Everyone is indigenous to Earth. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of discussion about indigenous people with respect to psychedelics and, you know, how we're, they were, once again, we're ripping off indigenous people as we co-opt psychedelics. I don't really believe that. I think that it's possible to be very insensitive about it. It's very, it's possible to overlook the fact that indigenous people have been the stewards of this knowledge and these plants and fungi for potentially thousands of years, maybe tens of thousands of years. And it's very, it's very tempting to overlook that and not acknowledge our debt to these indigenous people. And this is, this is what the McKenna Academy is increasingly becoming focused on is this need to preserve and protect this knowledge and share it, but share it in a responsible way. I mean, I don't have to tell you, Richard, it, it's, you know, it's rife with pitfalls to, to tread this area. You know, there are man, landmines everywhere and sensitivities everywhere. Everybody's got their position staked out. And, uh, you know, so sometimes it's hard to get a dialogue going, but this is why we have means like your podcast, for example, a forum where we can respectfully discuss all these things. Dennis, I grew up believing that I lived in a democracy and a republic, and I, I've sort of taken it for granted most of my life that it was like an established thing, that mm -hmm. it was like a permanent thing, that of all the things I have to worry about, whether it's climate change or nuclear warfare or something within my personal family, it never occurred to me that I had to worry about the very democracy and republic that we live in. But when that January 6th event happened, it was like an awakening for me. And I realized that we came within an inch, you know, maybe not an inch, I think it was 30 feet that these insurrectionists got to Pence. And if they would have gotten to Pence and either hung him as they were screaming or somehow stopped him, from signing that paper to legitimize Joe Biden's presidency, then Trump could have called martial law based on the fact that that Pence was captured and he would still be our president. We wouldn't have a democracy and a republic anymore. We'd have Trump as a permanent uh, fixture. And and it was like a you know, an enlightenment, an epiphany for me. Well, yeah, I mean, the prospect of what might have happened truly frightening. You know, so yeah, we did, we did escape. Yeah. We, we escaped that, but hopefully we're getting smarter. I mean, it, it, it seems the body politics is, uh, you know, the problem is, Richard, in a lot of these constituencies, you know, the position is don't bother me with facts. You know, my mind is made up. Right. And I think that's the issue with a lot of the, you know, claims of election fraud and all of this stuff that we're now seeing discussed and, you know, Tucker Carlson, and all of these people, you know, I mean, most normal people agree 
most people who live in what we like to call consensus reality, you know, agree that there was no election fraud. This was all made up. There's no evidence for it. But then you have this group of people who are much smaller, but also much louder than almost everyone else claiming, oh, yes, it was full of fraud and, you know, and there's no evidence for it. But but there are people, you know, people find it very hard to examine their assumptions. And, you know, and, and a set of assumptions are comforting, right? And this, you know, how are we going to direct this toward psychedelics? I tell I you how. Rather, I think it's rather easy because psychedelics are catalysts for challenging our assumptions, right? Everything we thought we understood about pretty much everything, the way we are, the way the cosmos is, and so on, is disrupted by psychedelics, you know, in a, in a useful way. In that sense, in that sense, they're learning tools. Like, you know, they're, they're teaching us different perspectives. I've always thought that, you know, you, you studied uh, psychedelics enough. You're familiar with the term default mode network, right? Which is where we usually are, right? And then I prefer to call it the reality hallucination. You know, it's, it's a understanding of it's ordinary consciousness is what it is. And it's based on certain assumptions. And a lot of it is based on things that the brain filters out. We have to filter out all this information in order to make sense of what is allowed to get through, you know, and the, and so that's the default mode network. And it's very useful for ordinary consciousness. But sometimes, you want to step outside that reference. And I think that's what psychedelics can do very efficiently. And then they, they open up, they let you step away from this usual perception and look at things from a different perspective, you know, look at, at the, look at it at, at arm's length, if you will, and maybe understand situations like your depression, your addiction, your anxiety, your trauma, all of these things that they talk about psychedelics being useful to treat, I believe, and, you know, feel free to contradict because I'm no expert, but I, I believe that this is because, you know, psychedelics are useful for such a broad spectrum of different mental issues, mental disorders, because they do let you step out of this reference frame temporarily. So they let you reframe your whole sort of existential situation, reevaluate, and in some ways diffuse it, you know, disarm it. You, 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 if you can understand a process like trauma, if you can step back from it, in some ways, it loses its power, you know, and, and you have just by having that different perspective, you can heal from that, from that disruption. Would you agree with that? I, I would agree that the psychedelics give us an additional perspective or additional perspectives, several mm -hmm. more perspectives than what we already have. Right. I would agree that in some cases, by witnessing rather than experiencing, for example, the trauma, we're able to make healing on ourselves. I also think that in other situations, what the psychedelics do is they give us that perspective, but then the work is up to us 
after the psychedelic experience to unravel what we learned, to dissect it, to pull it apart, to understand it, and to make peace with it emotionally. It's what people are referring to now by saying it's, they call it integration work, where you right. integrate the psychedelic experience. And the reason I'm focusing on that is that there's a growing concern amongst some scientists, one whom I just interviewed, a brilliant scientist named Dr. Ira Bayak, who wrote a, a beautiful paper that I just recently found, even though he wrote it in 2018 on psychedelic science, and he published it in the Journal of Palliative Medicine. And the concern, one of the concerns is that the public will go 180 degrees from being so afraid of all these psychedelics based on the mis and disinformation that the government has been putting forth for the last 50 years, and they will start to approach these medicines as panaceas, right? right? And so they'll go into a psychedelic experience thinking they're going to come out of it healed, and instead some of them come out of it with tons of information to work on in their therapy, but not necessarily healed. But what happened was they had all this material that was locked up inside and it was revealed to them. So that is also extremely important, but it's not a healing in and of itself. Right, right. No, the, the healing, the integration part, the healing is every bit as important as experience. Otherwise, as you say, you're just left with all this new information, all these new questions, and no real way to to integrate that back in into your life, you know. And so in the post, you know, sometimes we say the real healing, the real work begins on the play to hold from the retreat. Right? I uh -huh. mean, in a certain sense, you go you, you you go to these retreats or whatever the session is. And you get all this new information and then, you know, then the real work begins. And that may entail additional sessions, and certainly, or maybe not. Sometimes for rare people, I think once or twice is probably enough. But the important is, thing is not how many you session, sessions you have. It's the quality of the information that comes out of those and what you do with that, you know, how you... How you respond to that, that that's the work. How are you going to change your life? Sometimes it doesn't involve, you know, you, you may not change your diet. You may not change your exercise regimen or anything like that. Some people do, but usually what you get is what, what's, 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 what's most important is you get a shift in understanding, you know, and a shift in a sort of our understanding of our place in this cosmos and where we fit, you know, I mean, and, and, and to talk about it is sometimes sound trivial, you know, like, okay, we are all one. Well, yeah, we know that, right? <laughs> we know that in an abstract way, but to experience and actually experience that is different than a kind of an intellectual dispassionate understanding. I mean, that's, that's great. That's not emotionally moving. What you need is, you know, you need to not simply understand this. You need to own it. You know, you need to actually integrate it. And I, th I think that's, that's what psychedelics do. They are triggers for ca catharsis, 
uh, and I think catharsis is is part of the healing dynamics, the healing modality of what psychedelics do. You know, I mean, you you basically have to burn it down before you can reconstruct it, and that's and that's why psychedelic experiences they're not all uh, very pleasant. You know, some of them can be quite challenging, but they're not. They're not in any sense bad trips. And there is no such thing as a bad trip. I totally now, agree. Short of, I mean, if you don't survive, that's probably a bad trip. Anything short of that is not a bad trip, but it may be a very challenging trip and one that it's an opportunity to learn is what it is. Dave Nichols told me that he is not aware of one death from LSD of any dose that has been recorded. Dave Nick, Dr. Dave Nichols, by the way, everybody is perhaps one of, if not the foremost LSD scientist on the planet. And, and he's, he, that's what he told me when I interviewed him on this program, Dennis, you know, no recorded deaths from LSD. What about right. ayahuasca? What, what can you tell us about ayahuasca in that regard? Are people dying from ayahuasca or is it rare or does it happen? It does happen. And people, and it is rare, fortunately. And it usually results from people not observing the right safety protocols. Number one, the big one is possibly is to, if, if a person is on SSRIs, they must discontinue that because the ayahuasca contains monoamine oxidase inhibitors. As you know, they are used to potentiate the DMT in the ayahuasca. But if you're if you're taking MAO inhibitors, I mean that's that's rarely that people get MAO inhibitors, you know, clinically they're kind of obsolete, right? But what people are taking is SSRIs, and they can interact with the MAO inhibitors and, and cause serotonin syndrome, which which you know can be lethal, and you know you can explain to people what the serotonin syndrome is it's many things but one of the one of its characteristic is sort of the disruption of hypo of you know thermal regulations you get hyperthermia and all sorts of adverse side effects that can be can't be lethal it's very rare that people i i, I mean we, we always talk about this potential interaction as a hazard and the protocol is you you continue SSRIs well before the session, two or three weeks before the session, and then you're fine, you know. And I actually, even though we talk about it as a caution, I actually believe the risk is, I, let's put it this way, I don't know of any documented case where someone has died from an adverse interaction with SSRIs. So it's theoretically possible that ayahuasca will do that. The deaths that have resulted from ayahuasca, again, mercifully very, very rare, but the deaths that have resulted are not usually due to drug reactions. They're usually due to poor set at setting, you know, and as psychedelic elders, as we both are, we understand the importance of set and setting, right? The, the circumstances under which you do it, a poorly orchestrated set, and a lack of support from the therapist or the shaman, whoever, whoever is, whoever is uh, holding the space say, can lead to problems because psychedelics, especially ayahuasca. Well, I would, 
ayahuasca especially, but ayahuasca among them can lead to these, you know, very emotional states. I mean, very difficult to handle states. They can lead to paranoia. They can lead to panic. And they can lead people to, you know, do stupid stuff because they, you know, they don't, they don't, they, they misconstrue the situation. So yeah, okay, that guy next to me in the, in the circle is plotting to kill me. So I have to kill him first. So he grabs a machete and whack him. You know, <laughs> I've never seen this, but we know it goes on, you know, and, and it's purely a lack of, you know, a good shaman will, or, or facilitator, I think is a current, you know, facilitator, shaman, therapist, curandero, whatever you wish to, uh, however you wish to characterize them. But a good facilitator will be aware of these dynamics and make sure that everybody is chill, safe. you know, yeah, safe, safe and, and not, not projecting their fears onto other people. You know, you have to deal with your fears. It's coming from you, you know, so. So the answer is there are deaths have happened with ayahuasca, per possibly, probably much more often than LSD, but still quite rare. Quite rare. Know. Well, as I said, Nichols says there's never been one with LSD. So we're talking about ayahuasca, and ayahuasca is very much in the public atmosphere nowadays. You know, people are talking about it. They're going down to South America. They're doing it here in this country. You're an ethnobotanist. You, you, you study all kinds of plants. Are there other plants that are psychedelic that we don't know about that you might want to talk to us about a bit that are interesting that somehow just haven't come to our attention yet? Or well, there are there there almost certainly are other plants to have a, that you know are not widely known that are psychedelic you know and they don't even all necessarily have exist within the context of indigenous traditions they may just be out there. They have the right chemistry, but nobody uses them, you know, because nobody nobody has found found out about them. For example, you know, DMT is you know, D DMT is a very common molecule. It's only two steps away from tryptophan. So there are thousands of plants that contain DMT. But you 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 wouldn't know it. Well, like you might you know, you might be consuming a plant that contains DMT, but if you're not combining it with an MAO inhibitor, then you're not even going to be aware of the fact that it contains DMT because you'll get no effect if you're ingesting it. And then some indigenous people, don't ask me how, have figured out that, well, you have to make a snuff out of this, you know, and then when you use it as a snuff, then it works because you get around that MAO inhibition, that peripheral MAO inhibition that destroys the DMT. It just goes directly to the brain, you know, and people ask me all the time. I mean, a perpetual uh, sort of trope in talking about ayahuasca is how did these people figure out out of all the thousands of species in the Amazon, if you just make it from just these two, you know, you get an effective, an effective mixture. It's not quite that simple, <laughs> you know, in the first place, there are potentially other plants that could be used. And it, it wasn't a, a lucky accident. The, the current archaeological historical evidence indicates that ayahuasca emerged out of a culture that was very much into chicha, 
And they made chicha of all kinds, made from a variety of plants. And this culture, they had snuffs, they used snuffs, they had banisteriopsis, they used that for other medicinal purposes. And at some point, these guys are like, well, they're not all guys. You know, these, these, these shaman are effectively experimental ethnopharmacologists. And, and they're kind of like craft brewers in a certain way. I mean, they'll, they'll make a brew and they'll say, well, this is on the shelf. Let's dump some of this in there and dump some of that in there and let's see what happens. And you do that enough times and you're going to stumble on the wrong formula, you know? And, and I think, I think that's probably what happens. You know, what, what is, what is equally puzzling to me that nobody really talks about is, what about the snuffs? I mean, you would, so the snuffs are taken as a snuff, right? And they're, and the ones that contain DMT are active that way. They do not require monoamine oxi- oxidase inhibitor to be activated. But what would motivate a person to, you know, harvest some bark, boil it down, extract, and shove it up your nose? It, it is not the most intuitive thing, you know, and yet, they, they do it. They've discovered this. And, you know, you think of, given the history of, of smoking in the new world, you would think that they would be more inclined to smoke it. And they may sometimes, but I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can answer your question about what would, what would motivate them to make this stuff up and, and put it in their nose. And that is what you said, namely, that's what they do for a living. They sit around and try all different kind of things. Now, if you remember, okay. remember The Secret Chief, the book written about Dr. Leo Zeff. Yes. Well, okay. Now, Leo was a friend and a colleague of mine. Leo would, would do things like he would put certain medicines up my rectum. Yeah. Now, you could say, what makes a guy stick stuff up your rectum? But it's sort of similar to why stick it in your nose. The reason is... Leo was trying it everywhere. He'd put it in your right. nose. He'd put it in your mouth. He'd put it in your rectum. Probably if he could put it up your penis with a with an assistoscope, he would stick it in your penis. Because <laughs> you, you probably wouldn't allow that. But probably yes. not. I, I, I don't want an assistoscope. No, I don't yeah. want to. I don't want an assistoscope either. But <laughs> so. But what I'm saying is, pe- these people like you're describing and scientists who try things. Just like Sasha Shulgren, he would make something, he would try it. He makes something else, he would try it. He would make something yes. else, he would try it. And, and I think you're making a good point that these shaman have had hundreds, if not thousands of years, certainly hundreds more to try everything possible that they could mix together in the jungle. And that's, that's how we got down to this. I think that's a reasonable explanation. It's very different than the explanation we have regarding cocaine where supposedly the natives in South America saw the uh, donkeys eating certain plants, and then all of a sudden the donkeys seemed to have extra energy and got frisky. So the pay, the, 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 the supposedly the indigenous people took some of those plants and stuck it in their mouth and tried it in different ways until they figured out a way to, you know, make like a, 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 a cud or a bunch of it in their mouth. And they had that, uh, that up, the uplifting effect, right? But that was that was sort of like uh, that was an uh, like a sociological observation of the animal behavior. I think 
Yeah, I think this makes sense, what, what you just said. These people were experimentalists, and basically there are so many orifices, you know, only so many orifices exactly. that you can try. You know, and there is, in fact, a whole tradition of enema, enema use in South America and also in Mexico. They were well familiar with the properties of, of enema as a route of delivery. Uh, as, as well as regurgitation. As a way of getting regurgitation, as a way of getting rid of poison that they ate by mistake. Right. Yeah, right. And and of course, in ayahuasca, purging is, you know, they don't call it la purga for nothing. I mean, purging is understood to be part of the therapeutic effect. You know, in, in the indigenous context, purging is understood to be cleansing, you know, and in fact, it is cleansing because it helps get rid of parasites. Exactly. You know, and in, in that environment, that's important. And ayahuasca, ayahuasca by itself, without the admixture plant, is a, a very effective parasite, antiparasitic. And so, yeah, so, so that probably is the reason, you know, people, yeah, they're sitting around, they have all these different plants and they have, you know, time on their hands. So I guess, it, I don't know how systematic it was, but yeah, people probably investigated, you know, these different routes of administration. I mean, why not? What else did you have to do? And and uh, and then they hit on it, you know. Oh, you put this up your nose, and, and it works. You know, something happens. Something very dramatic happens. It's you know, interesting. I, I uh, just got, excuse me. Sorry. Oh, well, I was just thinking about some shaman sitting around a bunch of them, and they're saying, "How did these white people?" Had they discovered this LSD? And then some other guy says, well, you know how it is. They have these scientists looking for everything. And uh, <laughs> one guy one guy mistakenly took something and he had this experience. So then they realized what they found. It was sort of like an accidental thing. And the guy got on a bicycle with it. So they're looking, <laughs> they could be looking at, a, in a way, you know, the discovery of LSD was an accident. Well, in, in some ways it was an accident. Right. It wasn't it's again, the whole the whole history of LSD. It's interesting that you talk to Dave Nichols about this because you know the whole this whole myth has grown grown up around Hoffman accidentally taking LSD. You know he you know and and in the process of resynthesizing it. Right, being a Swiss chemist, he's not about to use a five year old sample. Right. He's going to make it new to try it. But he had what he described as a peculiar presentiment and intuition that there was something interesting about this molecule. You know, I mean, he had synthesized it five years previously, gave it to pharmacology. They gave it to some animals. They didn't do anything. They just kind of sat there and there went into chemical storage for five years. But it kept nagging on him that there was something special about this molecule. And Dave claims, he, you know, Dave claims that accidental exposure to LSD is not so easy, you know, especially if you're a Swiss chemist. I mean, if you're a Swiss chemist, you know, that that's just this side of OCD. You know, Swiss, <laughs> Swiss chemists do not spill stuff on themselves. You know, I mean, it just doesn't yeah. happen. Yeah. Claims 
he, he claims that he deliberately dosed himself with a very small, smaller than anybody that he dreamed would be active, you know, but a very small. Of course, we know that he had this experience in the lab, and then he went on the bicycle trip and all that, and then came to the lab the next day or whatever, and had, you know, the intuition that, well, this strange kind of weird change in consciousness, far short of a full LSD trip the first time, but definitely enough to get his attention. So then he came back to the lab and he took 0.25 milligrams of this substance, you know, and under the assumption that nothing could be active at that dose, right? no way that it was going to be active. Well, as we know, 250 micrograms is a walloping solid dose of LSD. <laughs> but in the in the old days, the we made that that discovery on the spot. You know, yeah. In the old days, we never took less than 250 because we didn't think that less than 250 was worthwhile. I tend to agree with you. I, I think that's you know maybe maybe a little less. I I think so. Here's something that a subject maybe we could segue into that's interesting is microdosing. Microdosing seems to be all the rage now, and people are microdosing with psilocybin, they're microdosing with LSD, and that sort of thing. I, I'm not convinced that microdosing is just placebo, or in most cases, I think it's, I think, I could Maybe people are deluding themselves, or people. I'll speak want, to. I'll they, speak they to that. They want to risk having an actual trip, so they can they can take small doses of LSD or psilocybin and and be with the cool kids, but they don't actually have to have a trip, which would I'll, be very inconvenient to their world. Well, it would be. I'll share my experience with that. I've microdosed now well over a hundred times, and with various dosages. I've microdosed with 9 and 10 micrograms, which is subsensate, and then I've increased by 1 or 2 micrograms at a time until I could get a JND, uh, a just noticeable difference. Mm -hmm. And a just noticeable difference for me occurs at about 14 to 16 micrograms. And there's no question at that, that dosage that I'm getting an effect. Hmm. What kind of an effect am I getting? I would say it would be close to a tiny bit of cocaine or maybe a tiny bit of Ritalin. It, it, the, the, the 13 to 16 or 18, it's like a slight, what, what's referred to on the street as an upper. And so mm -hmm. I think what people are getting from it when they're doing a microdose or a little more is a sort of antidepressant effect or put yeah. it from an, another terminology they're getting an energizer more more like it's not quite strong coffee but it's close to it yeah. because there is a there is a vibration that comes on when i get to right about 14 or 16 and then when i go up to 20 micrograms it's a clear vibration and that's the best way to describe it it's a bodily vibration. And if you're sophisticated, as I am with these things, you just ex you know, you accept it as a vibration and, and, and let it come in and deal with it as a vibration. 
It does not change the inner landscape. It does not change what I see on my inner television set. It does not have an effect on my blood pressure or my heart, my heart rate. It does not have an effect on my body temperature, and it does not have effect on my blood oxygen level. I take those four measurements when I do these various things with self-experimentation. But there is an effect. It's not now. The question is, is there also what you're describing as placebo effect? I would say almost for sure. Because, sure. right, because you can't avoid placebo effect. What you go into taking anything with is going to affect what affect you, what, what, what happens when you take it. If I go into eating broccoli thinking it's going to create blah, blah, it, it certainly en enhances the chance of me getting blah, blah. It doesn't mean I will, but right, that's just how, because of the, the mind and, and body, are, as you and I know, and more and more people are agreeing with nowadays, the mind and body aren't disconnected. It's all one big unit. Yes. Yes. Well, yeah. I, I mean, some people have even suggested that the psychedelic experience itself, a full, a full dose psychedelic experience, is in some way a placebo effect. You know, <laughs> I mean, well, it, it moves you off your center, and, and then whatever unfolds is as a result of that. But yeah, I think I think the placebo. But then with some. Since you've worked with microdosing and worked with LSD, you would expect that after a few days of microdosing, you'd get tolerance. You wouldn't get any effect. Has that been your experience? Well, the theory is that if you use it several days in a row, right, you've used up your serotonin. And so you're going to not have much effect. And so what Jim Fadiman, as you know, is recommending, if you want to do it regularly, is one day on, two days off, one day on. So you have a chance to build your neurotransmitters back up. I've tried it several days in a row to see what would happen. And it takes more of the dose in order to get effect as the, as the days wear on. So if on day one, I purposely did 13 in order to feel it, on day two, I might not feel 10 or 13. It might become subsunsate. That doesn't mean it's not having some effect. It's just an effect that I'm not aware of. Right. So I now, Amanda Fielding told me that she took 100 micrograms 90 days in a row at, at one point. I thought that was a very interesting thing to do because I wondered whether taking it so many days in a row would allow the person to take on the psychedelic consciousness, if you will, so that it would no longer be a different paradigm. It would be your new paradigm, and you'd walk around all the time in a 100 microgram consciousness. That isn't evidently what happened to her, and I personally have never had the discipline to take 100 micrograms 90 days in a row. What did she say happened? Well, I, nothing, nothing. It was a long time ago, and she was somewhat vague. When I, you uh -huh. know, when I try to, you know, to pin her down on the exactness of it. Uh, uh, Amanda could be vague sometimes, yes. But I, 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 but I would think, I would think that's a high enough dose to induce tolerance. So I would expect that the effects would diminish rather they, than they do up the dose. You that know, I the, can tell you for sure. I have done it enough days sequentially that 
the that the effect was 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 significantly less by the fourth day of 100 micrograms i i have a protocol when i take psychedelics i i always do it in nature or in a very you know set and setting i'm very i'm very very careful about and so if i pick if i pick the setting for the, well, what i do for the psychedelic experience i don't leave the setting and i have rules i don't talk on the telephone I don't use a computer, you know, to email people. I don't correspond and I don't go near any kind of uh, mechanical devices like an automobile or any kind of, or, or an electric drill or anything like that. Right. I pretty much stay in one place and I'm inside, you know, doing inner inner space travel. When I got to four or five days in a row of 100 micrograms, although I didn't challenge my protocol, I felt very strongly that I could go out in the world and do anything and I would be just regular. Yeah. yeah. And and I would say that was certainly not the case when I first started with a hundred. So there was the effect that you're talking about. So did you adapt to that altered state or did the altered state actually fade off after a while, after three or four days, I, you were not so altered? I don't, I don't think as an N of one, I can give you a really accurate answer to that. No. Because, see, I, I think I can't tell whether it wore off or I adapted. I would like to think that I, that I adapted and that I raised my consciousness to what you might call a site, a slightly psychedelic consciousness. But I think there was more of the effect wearing off. Yeah. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? Yeah. I think every single time I've experimented with psychedelics, it's been worth it. You know, I, I interviewed this one guy. I don't know if you know him, Dr. Alan Ajaya in Wisconsin. Do you know Alan oh, yes. Ajaya? Yes, okay. I do. All right. So Alan has done LSD 900 times. And so, wow. so I said to him, and he's close to my age, you know, he's around 80. So I said, Alan, are you going to continue to take psychedelics after 900 times? He said, definitely. And I said, <laughs> I said, why would you do that after 900 times? And he said, there's always more to learn. Yeah. And I so agree. I agree too. And that's why every experience is a positive experience. And I, I not only intend to keep using psychedelics for the rest of my life, I hope I have the courage to take LSD as I'm transitioning the way Huxley did. I think that would be a fascinating thing to do. That would be indeed, yes. Yeah, so so what do you think, Richard? We're, you and I are getting up there. You're 80. Um, you're 80? I'm going to be 84 in a couple of weeks. Oh, you've got more than a decade on me. I oh, yeah. 72 last December, and I'm feeling, you know, all of these health issues are coming up, not just the cardiac stuff, other things. And I'm wondering about the safety of continuing to use psychedelics. I would think, I would think that something like LSD is probably safe because you take, it doesn't really affect the blood pressure that much. Something like DMT or 5-methoxy DMT, I'm sort of, come to think that given my my heart issues maybe i shouldn't take that anymore you know i mean i haven't i haven't taken i haven't taken a psychedelic bef since before covid it's very strange it's been that's 
probably been the long, longest time that I've been away from these substances in years, you know, and somehow with the lockdown and all that, I just didn't have the motivation. I didn't have the opportunity, not an ideal place to do it. But, but then, you know, during this interim period, all this information sort of came to light about my heart issues. And now I'm wondering, I'm a little bit afraid to do these things. Do you think that's justified? I, I think the caution is justified based particularly on which psychedelic and its particular effect on the cardiovascular system. So, for example, I'm a big fan of MDMA. Mm-hmm. MDMA has amphetamine in it. Yep. Amphetamine has a direct effect on the cardiovascular system and could cause an arrhythmia. So I'm being very, very careful. I pretty much have stopped, not 100%, but close to it. And when I take MDMA, before I take it, I take a medicine propanolol to reduce my to uh, reduce blood pressure because MDMA can spike blood pressure, and I don't want to do that. Right. I have not curtailed LSD because, as you point out, LSD is not known to increase heart rate, to get into a tachycardia or an arrhythmia. So I feel much safer. I definitely have kept away from ayahuasca because I think ayahuasca has a, a better chance of, of, of uh, affecting the cardiovascular system. And I have a blockage, as you, you know, as you know, I've told you about it. So no to ayahuasca, extreme care with MDMA. I've talked to our f- friends around the country, our colleagues, uh, Midhofer and, and Doblin about my condition and MDMA. And uh, everybody says the same, you know, there's a, when there's amphetamine and something to be careful. Now, I have interviewed a whole bunch of scientists. Bunch might be, not be a word, good word to use with scientists. A whole group of uh, esteemed scientists at University of California, San Francisco recently on their psilocybin research. And I have particularly always asked each of the scientists about the effects of the psilocybin on heart rate and blood pressure. And what they have told me is that they have parameters for how much of a spike in blood pressure they consider reasonable, and they're prepared to immediately give medicine to reduce the blood pressure if any of the subjects go above that parameter, the top of the parameter. And they've all told me so far that to date, they've never had to apply the medicine because nobody yeah. nobody with the spike in blood pressure from psilocybin has gone outside the parameters that they considered acceptable. So with that kind of information, I'm feeling comfortable using psilocybin, but I will be watching blood pressure carefully and I've got medicine right handy to reduce the blood pressure immediately should I need to. I, yeah, think this, I, think, I think this kind of talk that you and I are having is quite sophisticated, and it's not for your ordinary bear who's, who's doing self-experimentation. This is the kind of information that guides, facilitators, etc., need to have so that if somebody you know, has an, a cardiovascular effect, they can do something about it immediately rather than have to take the time to get them to an ER. Right, right. Yeah, I think, uh, so I, I'm reassured by that. That That is my intuition that psilocybin is probably relatively safe. And 
you know, of all the psychedelics, I would take that. I would have second thoughts about ayahuasca too, but I'd probably take that too. The the rise of blood pressure is transient. I don't think psilocybin, you know, I think it's much less risky from that perspective. But I wouldn't have, you know, as I sort of get past all these procedures that I've had done and get back to normal, then I'm going to dip my toes back in, yeah, as it were, and I'll, I'll probably start psilocybin. You know, let me ask you this. How do you feel about mescaline? Mescaline is a phenethylamine, as you know. You think that's something in something like Wachuma or peyote? I mean, I don't take peyote, but I do take, I have taken Wachuma. I stay away from peyote because I feel like basically non-Indigenous people should just respect that and stay away from it. But from pharmacological point of view, do you think mescaline is a stimulant where there might be some risk involved? I've always felt that, and I know the least about mescaline, and the reason I know the least is because it's stock, you know, in the, in the psychedelic stock market. Psilocybin probably is, is a growth stock and it's done really good. And ayahuasca, uh, the same. LSD is, is, is a volatile stock because it has all of the baggage from the 60s and Timothy Leary. So it has a problem in, in public relations having nothing to do with the science of LSD whatsoever. And right. mescaline sort of dropped out of sight early on in the early 70s. And because I haven't seen it and haven't had access to it, and none of my friends in science talk about it. I really don't know much about it. I I, I feel like I, I'm not qualified to talk about it. I, I've t I've taken it. I took it in the '60s, and I and I I liked it. But it was one of many things, you know, that when you're trying everything at that time. Right. I want to ask you a question. You're one sure. of the most you're one of the most experienced self experimenters that we that we have available to us. As, a, as an elder, and in terms of medicinal potentials, what kind of commentary will you make about these various substances and their potential for being used as, as medicines psychotherapeutically, number one, but then I want you to answer the question completely separately in terms of creativity. One is medicinal use, the other is creativity. And then I have a third question. So there's three different questions here for you. And I'm so thrilled to be able to ask you. One is medicinal. One is creativity. And the third is as a facilitator of focusing the mind. And I want to say more about what I mean as a facilitator for focusing the mind. If you cut the back of your hand and you clean off the blood, maybe put a little antibiotic lotion or band-aid on it your back of your hand's going to heal and you know that and i know it yeah and a couple of days later there's going to be a scab and then sometime after that the scab's going to fall off and you look down and you may see a little scar but the skin is all back together and you're not leaking blood at all now since it's your hand you were the one who created that healing i didn't do it nobody else did it you didn't go to a doctor you healed your right. hand right if I say to you, Dennis, what was the, how did you do that? You, you didn't, you don't know how you did that. You just know you did it. And what I'd like the third question to you, one is 
medicinal, one is creativity, the third focusing on the mind. Do you think there's possibility that there's a psychedelic that we could take that would facilitate our focusing our mind, focusing our inner workings, our consciousness and the computer, so that we could gain a conscious understanding of how we healed the back of our hand? And could a psychedelic give us that kind of internal focus of the mind? That's my third well, question. Well, you know, your third question is the toughest question. You know, the first two, the disnoble therapeutic properties, creativity. Actually, Richard, I think it's hard to conceive of a psychedelic more perfect than, than psilocybin. You know, I mean, to me, it is... I'm amused in a way by all these companies that are trying to find, you know, some variation on psilocybin or some formulation or something they can patent, you know, and make it better. You can't beat psilocybin. It is made for humans, you know. It is so compatible with human metabolism and biochemistry, you know. I mean, two steps from tryptophan, basically. So I think that psilocybin is, you know, my, my brother used to say psilocybin is made for man. Of course, today we'd say made for humans, right? Because we don't use that terminology. But I think there's something to that. I think, I think that psilocybin is, you know, it's extremely non-toxic. It's compatible with human metabolism. It's a kick-ass psychedelic. It's a deep psychedelic. What more do you want? You know, I mean, it's just about perfect, I think, for, you know, for, for, for those reasons. Uh, therapeutically, another thing is therapeutically, because it is so easy on the body, it can be given to people who are in fairly fragile states of health, fairly safely, I think. So, though therapeutically and creative, creatively, I think psilocybin is hard to beat, you know. Now, the self-healing part, that's more interesting. I think maybe in that case, maybe ayahuasca is more appropriate because ayahuasca is used, you know, traditionally in the, in the context of churanderismo and vegetalismo and all these traditions. It's basically a diagnostic tool. That's the way it used to be used, you know, before the ayahuasca tourism thing got going. You know, I mean, tourists are not. You know, it, it used to be back in the day when it was used in a traditional context, it was the shaman that took the ayahuasca, not the patient, you know. And the shaman was taking the ayahuasca to get insights about the diseases, the problems that the patients had. And, you know, it, I mean, they, you know, you, you've heard it commonly said that, like, you know, ayahuasca is like, you know, the jungle MRI kind of thing, you know, where you can actually, in the altered state, scan the person's body and see, you know, what's going on, where the tours are, what else is going on. I don't know if that's really true, but it does have a reputation. I mean, that's traditionally, that's what they use it for, is to identify what the problem is and very often what, what the appropriate plants are to use to be used to treat that thing. That's why this whole dieta thing in the context of ayahuasca dieting with these different medicinal plants, 
in conjunction with ayahuasca, and the ayahuasca teaches you how to use these plants. You know, that's that's what they tell you. So maybe uh, maybe ayahuasca is the best diagnostic tool. But the thing is, it's not for the patients. It's for the it's for the it's for the doctor. The doctor takes the medicine. <laughs> Boy, you sure opened up my mind in a, for something I never thought of before in my entire life. I'm so grateful to you. And I'll probably never be able to do it. But I was just, as you're talking, I'm thinking, what would it be like for me to go into the office? I'll never, I won't be able to do it. I'd get arrested or I, 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 wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have the nerve. But to go in and with a difficult patient and I take 300 micrograms of LSD and the patient takes nothing. And then I get to see the patient through the eyes of this medicine, what that would be like. Because that's what you're saying the shaman are doing. And that's really, that's really quite something. Yeah. 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 That is, would, that's, would, quite, that's quite an interesting thought, Dennis. Would you be able to, uh, I guess you'd have to have a willing subject. Well, you know, there'd, there'd, be, there'd, be tons, the <laughs> there'd be tons of willing subjects. The issue is, you know, me and me, my courage and my license. <laughs> maybe right. I'd have to, maybe if I went to a, a private island somewhere where it would be legal, but it's another story. Are you going to the event at uh, Rick's Throwing in uh, in Denver in uh, June? Yes, I'll be there. Okay, I'm hoping to go myself, and if I do, I'd love to connect with you. I feel very emotionally close to you, Dave, uh, Dennis, ever since our connection at Wilbur that time, and I've always felt almost family with you, if not family, based on that connection, and I, I wanted to share that with you, and that's why I got involved with your with your recent surgery, and I put it on my calendar and so on even though we don't know each other all that well. And of course, we're also very connected through, through one of my closest people in my life is Ron Nadeau. And yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, yeah. I, yeah, I feel the same way, Richard. And, you know, that experience at uh, Wilbur Hot Springs was really, it was really, it's a memory that I cherish. Oh. It, it happened as soon as about, I think it was the first actual kind of public exposure it was when i started my book tour on the west coast you know and then i started at wilbur and i worked my worked my way all the way down to santa barbara you know yes stopping at various places and flogging books it was wilbur hot springs that that got me started and and so that was a tremendous place to launch the book and interestingly just a few days ago do you remember Olya Lapina? She was there, the Russian gal. Yeah. Uh, yeah, lovely person. And uh, I had, you know, I hadn't heard from her in years. Like, uh huh. We corresponded once in a while. And, and I think, you know, she had an apartment in San Francisco that she let me stay at one time. When oh. She, when she was gone. She, she travels constantly, but she just, dropped me an email about 10 days ago and said, I'm back in the States. I want to reconnect. I've been traveling all this time. You know, she was like a uh, very ambitious uh, mountain climber. That was her, you know, she was one of these super athletic people huh. climbing mountains. I was just surprised. I mean, it was just, it was, it was great to hear from her after all this time because Richard, you know, my new book, I suppose, I suppose we should plug the new book at least before we end. Please. For the books. 
the new the second edition of the book is is out now and so 10th anniversary so i came to i visited you in wilbur in 2013 which was the year it wasn't published until december 2012 yeah because so later on I the, the, the book tour was uh, 2013. And by the way, and, for those of you listening, he's talking about the second edition of the Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. That's right. Yep. There's a second edition. I didn't have to publish it myself this time. It's being published by Synergetic Press. Oh, I know so them. People, yeah. yeah. Well, they're good. They're, one they're good. The they're one of the best psychedelic publishing houses yeah. in the business. I've, so you I've, can go there. And uh, you can order my book. You can also order. They also published ESPD 50, the proceedings of this conference we did in 2017, uh, Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs. They published the two-volume set. They published the 1967 proceedings, the original conference, which I had nothing to do with. I was 17 at that time. That's a two-volume set also. Well, uh, yeah, the, the proceedings and the 2017, the 2017 uh, proceedings had the original 67 uh, and the 2017 proceedings to box in. And then this year, or rather last year, in May, we did ESPD 55, the 55th anniversary, and there will be a book coming out, the proceedings, and, and this one... Actually, I'm going to put the put the uh, URL in here because people can can still type and talk, which I'm not the 55 very good at this dot com. Right? So if people go to ESPD 55, they can look at they can sign up. They there's no paywall, but you have we're going to steal your email. You have to make a password, and then all the uh, the content is open, and there's lots of good stuff there. People and will be, they can find all this at Synergetics Press? No. they Well, Synergetic is doing the publishing. They can find it at this URL, ESPD55. ESPD55. Just, just put it in, in the chat box. Okay. ESPD55. Yeah. And, and and will there be information on how to reach find all these books, including your latest edition of The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, all on your well, website on the McKenna Academy. If you want to order the books, go to the Synergetic Press. Okay. Yeah. If you want to look at the proceedings, all the recordings from this conference, it was a three day conference. There was right. a lot of good stuff. You can go to ESPD 55. It's open access, but you have to register, you know. So we're stealing emails, but we're not taking your money, you know. So that's fair good. enough. <laughs> I'll put a note on it. I'll put a note about this in my next newsletter for you, too, Dennis. Please do. I, yeah, be, be I, happy know to. Our, I know our constituency will be very interested in it. Most of them have already heard of it, but I suppose okay. there's the rare outlier that's living under rocks or something. They've never heard of it. Everybody else has heard of it. But take a look yourself, and there's much, much uh, material there for further podcasts, further conversations. Oh, that's good to know. ESPD 55, everybody. I'm going to have to go, Dennis. Okay, Richard. It's been a great talk. Really enjoyed it. Look forward to the next time. And I'll see you in Denver. I look forward to seeing you in Denver. Thank you very much for taking time. 
to be with us today, Dr. Dennis McKenna. Look him up on the McKenna Academy. Look up this link, ESPD55, and you definitely want to get a copy of his book, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. It's a must-read about his adventures with his brother Terrence. Thank and you all for There's a 50-page new chapter in there. All right. In the new edition. So people that bought the previous one, they now have to buy the second one if they want the update 10 years on. Oh, okay. No more, no more shame. That's all right. We can, we can do that now. We're on the internet. And thank okay. you all for, for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. If you want more information about our program, just go to mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. All the programs are archived. Subscribe. That'll help us. And listen in again next week. I look forward to being with you then. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Happiness.